This week on the Q&A podcast, prosperity gospel scholar Kate Bowler discusses her memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason, in which she reflects on being diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer at the age of 35. This program originally aired in 2018 and was hosted by C-SPAN's Brian Lamb. Hi, I'm Michelle. I'm the executive producer of C-SPAN's Washington Journal, and I'd like to tell you about a new effort on our part. We're asking our listeners to help support C-SPAN's nonprofit operations. It's easy to do. Look for the Donate button on our website, c-span.org. Your financial support allows us to offer our unfiltered coverage of Washington, history, and nonfiction books everywhere people are consuming news and information these days. Our cable networks, the web, a mobile app, daily newsletters, and of course, C-SPAN Radio and our many podcasts. Please consider supporting that effort by making a tax-exempt donation today. Visit c-span.org slash donate. Thank you. Kate Bowler, where did you get the title, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved? Oh, I think it just came to me because it was one of the many boomerang theologies that people give to you when you're sick is surely everything's going to work out. God is making a way. And then I I wrote the book to try to explore like maybe maybe this was a lie I loved all along. So the book is kind of a theological excavation project where I'm trying to dig into my own secret, terrible beliefs. How sick are you? Um. Well, stage four cancer is not decorative, so it's uh, it's it's hard. But I'm I'm doing better than a lot of people. Um, I moved I've moved from the kind of crisis management to the more um, chronic part of this, in which I live scan to scan. But um, thankfully, so far, drugs and doctors and all kinds of things are making a way. When did you first find out you had cancer? Two years ago. 35, um, there's no cancer in my family, so I, I just didn't imagine that it was possible. And then I, one day out of the blue, I got a phone call that explained my mysterious stomach pain, and I realized that I was in really deep. What kind of cancer? It's colon cancer. I find I never am very specific about that, partly because I think I didn't imagine everyone imagining me in my colon for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, but as it turns out, it's... Um, it's increasingly common that young people are getting what was traditionally thought to be an older person's illness. But you do say in your book that uh, it's in the liver? Yeah, it spreads, I guess, often to the liver, and it did with mine. What's magic cancer? Oh, well, that was just the um, little phrase I gave to try to explain. They give you this, um, they give you a series of horrible options when you have stage four cancer. Like it could be this and this treatment might work. Or it could be this other much worse horrible thing, immediate death sentence, or this tiny little, um, what I have, a, they call a mismatch repair disorder where um, the cells replicated incorrectly and which could be genetic or not. And But if you have this 3% cancer, then new immunotherapy possibilities were open to me. So when I found out that I had this tiny little 3% kind of cancer, then I declared it was the magic cancer because it was one of the only kinds that opened me up for new treatment. Where do you live? I live in Durham, North Carolina, but I'm from Canada and Canadians bring this stuff up all the time. 
Where, where do you live in, I mean, what do you do in Durham, North Carolina? I'm a professor of American Christianity at Duke Divinity School. So I teach do-gooders of all kinds, pastors, nonprofit workers, just people with hopeful thoughts when they stare at the horizon. It's a lovely place to work. What do you actually teach? I teach the big survey courses, so the kind of Puritans to megachurches courses, um, and then I do smaller seminars. So I'm a specialist in modern American Christianity, and then for the last 10 years I've been studying televangelists and megachurches and just people with beautiful hair. <laughs> I want to show you a picture that you have on your blog site of your husband, Tobin, yeah. and your son, Zach. Yeah. How old is Zach in that picture? Oh. <laughs> That's uh, um, that's his baby dedication. Uh, we all grew up Mennonite, and so he has an I heart and a baptism onesie to just make clear that he is being dedicated and not baptized, because otherwise all the Anabaptists would immediately reject us. He is just, um, I think he was nine months or something, and that's in Tobin's parents' backyard among all Mennonites. What's a Mennonite? Oh, um, they are people who love uh, to talk about their suffering. Uh, they came out of a, um, uh, Menno Simons was their leader in the 1700s, and they moved largely communally through Germany and then Russia, and then a whole bunch of them moved to Canada in the late 1800s. And it makes, they, they populate a lot of like rural Manitoba and Ontario and in the States. Indiana, Nebraska, Kansas, and then Pennsylvania, different kinds of groups that all have a really thick account of their own suffering, which is largely why they commit to doing things together. Simplicity, pacifism, the desire to ruin salads with jello, sometimes <laughs> deli meat. I, uh, I've always gone to a Mennonite church and I found that they are my very favorite people to be wonderfully sad around because they almost expect it. What kind of things um, do Mennonites do that, let's say, uh, Baptists don't or Catholics don't? Sure. Well, I think they're most famous for their pacifism. So my husband's grandpa, for instance, was a conscientious objector in World War II. So whereas my grandpa was um, flying uh, bomber planes, his grandpa was in the mines. Um, so it's an entirely alternate history. They're most famous for their pacifism, often for their anti-materialism. And that's partly why it was, um, I mean, you usually can't tell anymore the difference between them because they're often plain clothes like the rest of us. They look like every average capitalist. Uh, but deep down, they at least feel really guilty for the things they have. How many are there in the world? Uh, in the world, I don't know. There's a tremendous growth in um, like Rwanda, Uganda. So there's some, a lot of international growth. There's um, a lot in the plains of, um, of Canada, but I'm not actually sure what the overall total is. So when you teach at Duke, what kind of degrees are the people that you're teaching getting? Um, I teach in the graduate program, in the, for, so some of them will get PhDs, but most of them will get either a master's in religious studies or an MDiv, which means they will become a reverend and they will go off to inflict my views on other people. Why did you want to teach this? I think um, I like the idea that ideas always have traction and that we're beholden to communities of care, and maybe that's become more and more important to me now that I've um, been living with my diagnosis is you realize like you're giving people a worldview and then they have to go out and live in the hospitals and the boardrooms and the living rooms holding people's hands during the most important moments of their life. During this process of finding your cancer, how many doctors did you see? Oh, uh, wow. Well, I had a number of undiagnosed 
entirely unrelated, as it turns out, illnesses. So I saw over 100 within the last few years. And then in that last stretch, um, maybe 15. You had another illness before the cancer. What was that? Well, I mean, it sounds, it, it ended up being a thousand times more dramatic than it seemed, but I lost use of my arms for over a year. As it turns out, it was just an, an, some kind of very easy to fix nerve disorder um, related to having overly lax joints. It's so boring, but when I had it, it was very dramatic. I'd find I was like locked in bathrooms for too long because I couldn't turn the door handle all of a sudden. So it made writing my first book, Blessed, um, mostly a nightmare because I would often have to have like double arm casts at a healing crusade or then have to try to replicate research notes or my book while using terrible voice dictation software to a computer. So I look back on that as a very dark, lightly comical time of my life. Your first book, Blessed, was about, and when was it published? 2013, uh, Blessed, it was a history of the prosperity gospel. It was um, the first historical account of this really widespread movement. It took me about 10 years of obsessive research slash stalking people in order to map the kind of contours of it. It was really hard to study at the time because no one calls themselves a prosperity preacher. And so you can't do like an easy survey, like, well, all the prosperity preachers in the room, please put up your hands because it sounded so um, um, naturally insulting to assume that they weren't just preaching the gospel. I want to ask you whether this man we're about to show you is about a minute uh, sure. is a prosperity uh, minister, and if he is, how do you know that, and have you talked to him? I got money, I got land, I got houses. I've got about 10, do you mind me bragging for just a moment? Do you mind me bragging? I don't have anything God didn't give me. Everything I have came from God. If you were my protege, if I wanted a debt-free house, I would do what I did. I sowed a seed equal to one month's mortgage payment. A preacher said if I'd sow a seed equal to my monthly uh, house note, my mortgage, that's the word, mortgage, it was $3,400. He said I'd have a debt-free house in 12 months. I didn't see how that could be, but I got my debt-free house in eight months. Oh, Mike Murdoch. Yeah, he is one of the most unrepentant of prosperity preachers insofar as he really doesn't mind talking about money all the time. So if anyone's up too late, they've usually watched Mike Murdoch on 24-hour Christian TV. Um, he is uh, he's a famous kind of old school prosperity preacher when it was uncommon for Pentecostals at the time to really talk that much about money. And Mike came along and talked about it all the time and sold like seven secrets to seven kingdoms. He does a lot with kind of spiritual numbers. Like you can see him running the spiritual math for people. If you will give me this much, then God will reward you in this way. Uh, based in Texas, mm -hmm. talks about a seed yeah, so it was a new language. It was pioneered um, largely by Oral Roberts, who is the um, handsome and charismatic founder of Oral Roberts University. And he really pioneered this agricultural language. The idea is kind of genius. Uh, insofar as um, it helped explain how money was supposed to work when you give it to someone else. And the idea was um, your donation is then a seed 
and you have to plant it in the ground, the ground being the righteous pastor. And then of course there's a time of waiting. And um, Oral Roberts uh, wrote his first book, I think in 63 or something called The Miracle of Seed Faith. And it explained like every good believer is almost like a spiritual farmer and has to learn how to live according to these seasons of sowing and reaping. But it also really helped explain what happens when you give money and then you don't see a return. The answer is it's still in the ground and then you have to pray for the rain and the seasons to change so that you can finally receive your harvest. How much of that do you believe? Oh, uh, none of that, yeah. But I think that was partly why um, I was trying to remain so open when I was doing this study is someone like Mike Murdoch is like the caricature of that late 80s televangelist who weeps in front of the camera and asks for donations. I mean, he's he is the caricature. Um, but so often the people that I met in the pews wanted very average things. And if you even look at like the little letters people used to write to Pentecostal healers and and like the early Mike Murdochs, they would they would write for things like a new washing machine or like the nerve to go to a new sewing circle and make friends. I mean, self-esteem, tiny advances, all the little things that make life a little more bearable. And that gave me a lot of compassion for the people who stay up late watching Mike. Next clip is of a man that we knew years ago. Um, he went to prison. Yes. Name was Jim Baker. He was married to Tammy Faye Baker. She's dead and he's remarried. <clears throat> His new wife is named Laurie Graham. Let's watch this. I've got a couple of clips and I want you to explain how this all this works. Fox has President declared Donald Trump. Donald Trump is president. This was a miracle, not by man. This this you know, God called him to do it. And I'm going to be bringing the prophets in and, and we're going to talk. And those who prophesied and those who watch this thing, because it's the hour of the church in America again. 78 years old, still active, um, does television every day like this. What do you make of him? You know, I hadn't seen that clip, but it doesn't entirely surprise me that so much of his ideas of more than enoughness were always rooted in patriotism. And it's this, um, there's a slice of the prosperity gospel in which republicanism and a sense that um, the prosperity gospel of both the individual and the nation are connected that come together in someone like Jim Baker. But uh, he was just, they were, he and Tammy were the king and queen of 1980s televangelism. They had the most watched uh, Christian program. Their uh, theme park, which they uh, called Heritage USA, that was uh, built right around the border of uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, was meant to be this expression of their jubilant more than enoughness. So you could come and like slide down the water slide and then watch a live taping of Jim and Tammy in their living room, come on down. And they called everyone family. And they really reached into people's living rooms and, and, and asked people to celebrate a Pentecostalism that had kind of come of age. Of course, 
the late 80s, they are, um, Jim is toppled by both a sexual and financial scandal that sends him to prison. And weirdly enough, I ended up meeting a number of the people that he had met while in prison when I gave a talk at the, as it turns out, the prison where he had been, um, the federal prison where he had been held. And so I was giving this history of the prosperity gospel talk. And normally I usually have to talk people into caring. And then a bunch of the guys at the back just put up their hand and were like, oh, we knew Jim. <laughs> they had all kinds of stories. Uh, Did you interview him? Down, he's now near, near Branson, Missouri. No, and he, um, I've never met him, though I'd love to, and he wrote a book called I Was Wrong, saying that he repented of uh, much of his prosperity theology, but then as you can see, he's a natural salesman and went on uh, largely to sell a dehydrated foodstuffs for the elderly on his Hold new program. Right there. Oh Let's, no, it's happening. <laughs> this, yeah, these are, so people know when they watch it, there's the big buckets. Yes. And if you keep your eye on the screen in the left-hand corner, you can see the more buckets you buy, the more money you pay, but it's a, it's a bargain the more you buy. But anyway, this is Jim yes. Baker uh, selling uh, the buckets. All of this food, we're gonna extend another couple days because I, I just, Feel like we should it's four months worth of food so we really only need three of them to make a year of food That's so right. we actually give you four buckets so hey this food lasts up to 30 years yes. on your shelf and that's what's and America. you know these are great because they're even waterproof so even if they you are in a flood and it gets wet and all shipped free that's right today and, and you're getting 10,472 servings so you're getting a lot of food a yeah. lot of food yeah it is for those grandkids grandkids and $3,700 for that. What do you think of that? And why do they do this? Well, I mean, it is, I think, I think a very pragmatic reason is that he was from day one an amazing salesman. And he used to say, you know, I could have been anything, but I just ended up selling the gospel. And if you watch, so I actually have hundreds and hundreds of hours of old PTL footage that I watched for the research of the book. Um, it was also fun because whenever Tammy Faye sings, my son dances. It was this kind of round robin of different entertainers and speakers. And it really showed you how little they actually preached and how much it was this carnival family atmosphere. and and very often pitched toward the elderly. And so for him to go from a prosperity theology of there's more than enough, just donate to me, to a more scarcity model in which there's not enough, also give money to me, it shows how incredibly pragmatic and um, adaptable its preachers can be. In your current condition, stage four cancer, what would you not believe if a minister says to you, this is the future? What would, you, what would turn you off? Well, I mean, and one of the things I did learn from Pentecostals was their sense of wonderment and openness to the idea that God can do surprising things. So I try to be, to take that in a spirit of generosity, but so often it's incredibly uh, prescriptive. Um, like, and if you do give this donation, then here's this miracle oil. A lot of transactionalism. I get a lot of that stuff in the mail still. Do you believe them? I mean, no, uh, no. Do they believe themselves? I mean. I think there are, I think many of them do, um, but there are consummate salesmen among them. I mean, they were, and they were always really pragmatic and entrepreneurial. So for instance, even when they just had tents, they would travel around these tent revivalists. The earliest ones were tent revivalists. Um, when they were done with a tent, either because their crowds were too big or too small, they used to cut up the tent into tiny little squares and then sell the pieces as if all the spiritual power had been absorbed into the fabric. And like, 
It goes to show you that at every stage, they're both promising something like a tactile reminder that people, I mean, people want. Like someone like me, when I got very sick, right away I, I wanted things I could touch and feel, a little reminders that I was still myself. And I can, st I can see why these very material faiths really catch on. Here is the President of the United States talking in 2015. And Norman Vincent Peale, the great Norman Vincent Peale was my pastor. The power of positive thinking. Everybody's heard of Norman Vincent Peale. He was so great. He would give a sermon you never wanted to leave. Sometimes we have sermons, and every once in a while we think about leaving a little early, right, even though we're Christian. <laughs> Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, Frank, would give a, survey, would give a sermon I'm telling you, I still remember his sermons. It was unbelievable. And what he would do is he'd bring real-life situations, modern-day situations, into the sermon. And you could listen to him all day long. What, in your book, did you write about Norman Vincent Peale, and what did you write? Yeah, well, the prosperity gospel evolved in these different streams. One of them was the Pentecostal version that we saw in people like Mike Murdoch. But define Pentecostal. Oh, sure. So it's, uh, it's a movement predicated on the idea that we're in a new era of signs and wonders, and it started in the early 1900s. And um, it most often looked uh, to healing and um, the gift of tongues, so an unknown language. So like in some of the clips, you'll see people switch to what doesn't sound like intelligible words. And it's also Are they, spiritual. We heard Mike Murdoch talk that yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, it's called <laughs> glossolalia. And some, what it's, it's, in some versions, it's supposed to be a translatable language, but in most iterations, it just sounds like syllables that seem random, but they believe is a, is a spiritual heavenly tongue that's given to them to communicate with God. So Norman Vincent Peale. So Norman Vincent Peale doesn't come from that Pentecostal strain. He comes from what looks like um, mainline Protestantism. Um, he had a Methodist background, plus this theology of self-esteem. They're all borrowing from this kind of seedbed of theology called New Thought, which was a movement that said that the mind was a really powerful spiritual incubator. So like whatever you can think and then articulate will come true, like you're unleashing a spiritual force. So someone like Donald Trump, who then, um, who latches onto a figure like Norman Vincent Peale, what, what we see there is a very respectable version of um, what you say and confess you will possess. Let's watch him. This is back in 1987, uh, and it was it's called the Hour of Power, which is at the Crystal Cathedral. What do you want to be? Then dedicate it to Jesus Christ along with your whole life. And don't doubt it. Believe. And then form a picture in your mind of that goal. Hold it tenaciously in the conscious mind until by process of intellectual osmosis, it sinks into the unconscious. And when it gets into the unconscious, you have it because it will have all of you. Yeah, I mean, they really make visualization and mental processes the kind of theological infrastructure for how it works. So how is it then, like, what's different than, 
having just good self-esteem and doing this? And their answer is that you, you absorb it in such a way that you can actually unleash it into the world. And so Norman Vincent Peale, he kind of brands his version of the prosperity gospel into positive thinking, and it, it develops into this long lineage with other famous preachers like Robert Schuller and someone like Donald Trump, who becomes the first presidential candidate whose only religious biography stems from the prosperity gospel. He, Norman Vincent Peale, <clears throat> said, don't doubt it. Why not? Well, otherwise, so there's positive confession and then there's negative confession. So the idea that if you doubt it, if you have, um, if you've created any kind of mental obstacle, then it won't come true, which means, of course, that whenever bad things happen, you really just have to look at yourself to figure out why it didn't come to be. This one will hit home with you. By the way, have you ever met Benny Hinn? Yes, I did. I went on a trip to Israel with um, Benny Hinn and his 900 followers for that trip to walk where Jesus walked. And he was originally from Israel. Uh, yeah, he's also a little bit from Canada, a little bit from Israel, and lives in the States. He has a complicated when biography. You, when you say 900 of his followers, that, that's the only 900 he's got? or No, no I, they take these really big tours. So you go with you know, a thousand other people and 30 giant tour buses, and then you travel around Israel. It's, I mean, you pay a lot of money, and that's partly why I was interested, is like, what kind of person is financially investing in a faith healer, and what are their hopes for an experience like that? Why do you call him a faith healer? So his specialty is the idea that um, if you believe enough that your body will reflect um, the glory of God and be restored. And so he also has a strong financial message, but he's most known for his faith healing. Do you believe him? I, uh, Benny Hinn is not someone I have a lot of intellectual and theological affinity toward. Um, I've seen a lot of Benny Hinn. Uh, he's one of the, um, one of the pastors that I watch the most and he's often the most dramatic. So he's the one on YouTube where, you know, he'll raise his hand and then you'll see you know, a hundred people fall over at the same time. And his very dramatic um, approach to faith healing is, is one that I often found to be s somewhat manipulative. Here, um, you're only going to see one person in this one. This was um, uh, December 18th, 2017. Benny Hinn. I rebuke that cancer. In the mighty name of Jesus, I come against you in the name of the one I serve. Leave this young lady. Leave her now in the name of the Lord my God. It's really gone, right? There's no pain in your stomach, right? Okay. Well, then that's real. Uh, you know, I, when I see something like that, I can only see it from her perspective. I've had a lot of people pray for me similarly. And um, as a Christian, I believe that Christianity has a very long tradition of divine healing. So I certainly don't think that it's not possible for God to heal people. But you can see how quickly he moved from praying for her, he as the anointed vessel of God, and then um, his confidence in himself as that vehicle, and then, and then the idea that because she didn't have pain in that moment that she's definitely healed. 
It, Have you ever seen one of these where somebody stood up and said, uh, no, uh, Dr. Hen, I got pain where I had it before? Uh, yeah, yeah, I saw one, well, it was for financial healing, and it was uh, in the recession, and they were asking for, it was at this big convention center, and it was one of Hen's protégés, it, um, it was Paula White. And um, when, when they said, we'd love, uh, we need donations for this and this and this, one person in the back just started yelling, we don't have it. And there was this horrible silence and then laughter because the truth was it was, it was a financially exhausting time. And then what the response was, was a 10 minute sermon berating people for lack of faith. Our next clip happens to be Paul White, oh, great. which I know you didn't know. Who is she? Uh, Paula White was a spiritual protege of Benny Hinn and also T.D. Jakes, a famous African-American preacher in Dallas. And uh, she's now most famous as Donald Trump's um, personal pastor. Uh, but she has a large megachurch in Florida called Without Walls. And she is a, a chipper uh, preacher of more than enough. Have you met her? No, I haven't, but I've been to her church and I've seen her live a few times. Was that when you were doing your research? Yeah, that's right. Here is Paula White, uh, based in Florida. So at the beginning of this year, I want you to make a commitment. The first hours of your day, give to God. I want you to spend time in prayer. I want you to spend time in His Word. But it's crucial because He says, do not come before me empty-handed. For your first fruits offering, and first fruits is the full of, it's not the tithe. Tithe is one-tenth of your gross income. It's the first tenth, not just any tenth. That's why it redeems the curse. But the first fruit is the whole of. Many of us bring one day. Some of us bring one week. Some of us bring an entire month's salary because we understand the principle of all first belong to God. Who made up the 10% uh, tithe? Well, there's all kinds of scriptural precedent for money that goes first back to the faith community. And there's there's a lot of argument about spiritual math, how much you're, whether it's 10%. Um, what you can see there with first fruits is a kind of thickening of um, categories that the prosperity gospel develops in order to ask for different kinds of donations. So the 10% doesn't just then become a suggestion, it becomes mandatory. So some large churches will even ask for believers um, financial records in order to make sure that they're actually giving 10%. Otherwise the threat is, and you could hear it there, in order to redeem the curse, the idea that you are spiritually in danger if you're not um, fully giving. So there's um, then there's seed faith offerings, which can be spontaneous and related to the person. So you might have a guest preacher, so you give a seed faith. There's wait, 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 wait. seed faith. Seed faith, like we talked about before with Oral Roberts. And that's just the idea that that language means that you should give in hopes that that person will be the reason that um, it's returned back to you. First fruits. There's even Pastor's Appreciation Day, in which you're supposed to give a certain amount to celebrate the pastor's anniversary at that church. I mean, there's just more and more and more categories and reasons to give. I, I have a, a friend who talks about her pastor and, and uh, he gets, uh, when he goes on vacation, they pass the hat. Yeah. When uh, it's his birthday, they pass the hat. Yeah. And, and what's your reaction to that? Is If you were in a church like that, what would your reaction, reaction be? Well, because weirdly enough, most of the people I interviewed really liked seeing their pastor do well as an expression of who they are. Like, look how well he lives. That's how much he demonstrates 
um, the spiritual principles at work. Because the argument is, well, if it works for him, it can work for me. So some of it ends up being really celebrated. So pastors with jets or pastors with, you know, his and her Mercedes Benz is out front. I mean, sometimes the megachurch will put the parking space of the pastor with the luxury car right in front with a vanity plate so that everybody files past it. They're certainly not hiding it. Well, what, would, what would your action be if you said, I need another thousand dollars for you and you see him with a gold uh, yeah. Mercedes and all that. I mean, Oral Roberts, I remember I was down there one time years ago doing a, a story and he had two large Mercedes in his, uh, outside of his home. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a really uncomfortable feeling about those kinds of displays in part because um, so often those churches have uh, are run like family businesses in which children or brothers and sisters are also board members. And so, I mean, there's been a real push in recent years, especially since the 2008 Senator Grassley investigation for financial transparency. But it certainly makes it hard because their argument is one that parishioners believe, which is these we live in a more than enough spiritual universe and if god gives to them god can give to me what uh, do you mean by redeem the, the curse well um i think there's they live in a very she said that yeah paula white was talking about just the imagination is that it's this densely peopled spiritual universe and that everything you're doing is not just um for something, it's against something. So, I mean, someone like Norman Vincent Peale really never spoke like that. He talked more about self-esteem and used a lot of psychological language and categories. Someone more like Paula White, who's very much in the Pentecostal stream of prosperity, is going to think a lot about supernatural forces always at work against you, and you're using God's principles to counter them. The next man is well known. Uh, reportedly online is worth between 40 and $60 million. He has a 17,000 square foot home. Home's worth about 10.5 million. Again, just watching, uh, I mean, looking at the web. And he sees, I think I wrote down something like 52,000 um, people a week uh, that he stands in front of. Anyway, here he is, Joel Osteen. We installed large floodgates all around the building. Last Sunday morning, during all the rain, the waters came within a foot, or maybe two, of breaching the walls and flooding the building once again. Without those floodgates, we wouldn't be in here today. The water started receding. The water started to recede late Sunday, maybe into Monday. We felt it was safe to start taking people in on Tuesday. If we had opened the building earlier and someone was injured, or perhaps it flooded and people lost their lives, that would be a whole different story. And I'm at peace with taking the heat for being precautious, but I don't want to take the heat for being foolish. What do you think of his story? I mean, he got beat up over Harvey when he didn't let people into that uh, former uh, basketball arena. You know, I don't know enough about the details to say whether he was appropriately cautious, but... Um, it does really raise the question of what a large prosperity church is for. I think part of what the critique he got was, was is his job to be the front lines of charity? And I mean, that's the, I think that's a real question for prosperity preachers when their entire theology says, well, if I do it, you can do it. It's, it's heavily individualistic. 
And in moments like that, where as the pastor of the largest church in the country, he's meant to set a kind of national example, it does, um, it does call into question what churches are for. Historically, they have been fundamentally um, social services. In your opinion, why does someone want to sit in a room with maybe 30,000 people uh, for a service like that? Uh, he's uh, he's a really easy preacher to listen to. He tells adorable, corny jokes. Um, there's a, a, a an, always an atmosphere of real positivity and celebration. Uh, he's um, by all accounts very kind. It's 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 easy to like him, and it's easy to want to be around like-minded people. The the folks that go there are often aspirational in some way. It, it works for a message like that works for all classes. For the poor, it's for an imagined, um, hoped-for life. For the middle class, it often explains what people already have. And for the upper class, gives them reasons um, to keep um, caring and also a justification for what they have. He's based in Houston. This next fellow, uh, also well-known, is based in Dallas. I'll uh, run the clip and then you can explain how he fits in at all this. If Nelson Mandela had not been incarcerated, had not been mistreated, had not been ostracized, he would not have the passion to do what he does. If Oprah Winfrey had not gone through the things that she had gone through, she would not be so committed to making sure that everybody finds their purpose and finds their dream and everybody gets healed and everybody's okay. I'm telling you, what you think is working against you is actually working for you. Pain. Yeah, I mean, T.D. Jakes has, um, he's probably the most famous African-American prosperity preacher, though he would hate the term prosperity preacher, because so much of what he does is along the similar lines of talking about self-esteem um, and a God of more than enough. But his brand, especially Woman Thou Art Loosed, which was a franchise that he um, developed in the mid-90s around um, healing sexual abuse of women in the church, really does... Um, bring that message out where your pain then becomes your purpose. The worst thing can be the best thing. It's these constant spiritual inversions that promise that within the course of a human life, you really can every, have everything you hope for. Is Oprah religious or not? I think so. Yeah. I don't mean personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, does she fit into sure. the religious world that you're talking about? Yeah. Um, well, a lot of the guests she's had, like um, the, the author of a book uh, called The Secret, was very popular, which was another expression of that new thought idea I was telling you about where your mind is a spiritual incubator and you can have what you can conceive of. Um, it also is the idea that there's no such thing as luck, that any obstacle can be overcome for those who work hard and make the most of every opportunity. And I, that's certainly just an American belief as well. It's just in the water. T.D. Jakes is 60 and he's, again, these figures are loose because you're never quite sure, but they say he's worth about $18 million. Mm -hmm. Why is somebody that does what he does worth that kind of money? Well, T.D. Jakes in particular has been incredibly entrepreneurial. So he has, um, I think, a film production company. He's been involved in music. He has a, a fully orbed... Um, series of for-profit and non-profit enterprises. And, and part of that springs out of this uh, prosperity theology's entrepreneurialism is I can have it and, and so can you. What do you think of the fact that these churches and ministers live in a uh, tax-exempt environment? Well, I think there's a lot of controversy over the, the tax-exempt status, especially for parsonages, I mean, um, with homes that ministers live in. It's hard. Uh, I, th I think it's becoming more and more of an ethical 
question because um, churches are increasingly split between the very large and the very small. So the average church has about only 70 people in it, including um, kids. And then, uh, but, but most people in the country go to these uh, top heavy churches which is to say very well-resourced churches. And so what's tax-exempt status for some pastors is also what makes most churches able to stay financially afloat. You you live in Duke, North Carolina, and almost all of these people are from the South. They are, yeah, they're from the Sun Belt. Why? Um, You know, that's such a a great question. Part of it, I think, has to do with these are largely suburban, exurban churches. Big churches just need land, and so they f- we find that they're slightly on the outskirts of cities and really sprawling. Um, I'm just doing the hand gesture of the Sun Belt right now because they're mostly in that Atlanta to LA kind of wide uh, half circle. Um, partly it has to do with urban sprawl. Uh, partly it has to do with migration patterns. Are they more religious in the South than they are in the North? And I mean, because sometimes it surprises you. Like there are a lot of prosperity mega churches um, around Seattle. And so that, that creates a kind of evangelical subculture in a largely more secular state. But I started this project um, in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which has the largest prosperity mega church in Canada. and. We're Canadian. Like we're not supposed to have prosperity megachurches. If you ask most people, it seems so very American. And even if you listen to preachers all over North America, they'll still say like, "In the name of Jesus." And even just the way they say Jesus, you can tell they had a Southern preacher as a teacher. Here's a man that's worth twenty-five million dollars, allegedly from Saddleback, Saddleback, Arizona. Rick Warren. Now, I don't know if you figured this out or not, but God often uses pain to get our attention. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he, he shouts to us in our, pain. He's, in our pain. He's going, hello, do you think I just made you to live for yourself? Huh? You think that the whole purpose of your life is for you to just live for you? No, 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 no. You're made for so much more. And, and God often uses pain to get our attention, and God often uses pain to prepare us for a breakthrough. So if you're in pain right now, congratulations. Do you believe that? Well, and first of all, I won't say that, like Rick Warren, I don't think is a prosperity preacher. He's largely Southern Baptist, and um, in his church, Saddleback, um, in California, He's in California, not in in Arizona. Yeah, no, it's fine. It's Saddleback Church. And it's largely an evangelical church. But I think what he's getting at, too, is a theology that most Americans want to share, which is is that somehow, Pain is always progress. I, I don't believe that anymore. I mean, I think I really thought that life was just sort of a series of ladders, and if I just kept trying and climbing, that it was always going to lead to something. Because you've had a lot of pain. I mean, and the pain that just leveled me. And, and part of it was coming to grips with um, me not being able to cure my own cancer and assume that I will always have the time I want with my family and be able to imagine uh, the future for myself that I had expected. And so while I think all kinds of beautiful things can happen in our dark seasons, I think it's, I think it's, a, it's a beautiful lie to say that, that, that pain will always be a reward. Here is a name that certainly people my age uh, will remember. He's still alive. Uh, He's 82 years old. But this goes back to 1988 when he got himself in a little trouble. Let's watch. I have sinned against you, my Lord. 
and I would ask that your precious blood would wash and cleanse every stain until it is in the seas of God's forgetfulness never to be remembered against me anymore. You know, that apology, like it, it defined in people's minds the, the caricature of the televangelist. Jimmy Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart, and he was, he was an incredible orator, um, Assemblies of God pastor. Still going. Yes, and with his son, Donnie. And, uh, and what's so fascinating is he started off as a prosperity preacher. He decided he thought it wasn't true anymore, which shows you the internal wrangling inside Pentecostalism around whether or not it was the same thing as the prosperity gospel, and um, which it isn't, but there was internal division. And, um, and he was, by the time of his own fall, involved in um, a, very, a very heated series of, um, of rivalries with other, with, with, with other preachers. Didn't so, he out another preacher for being with a prostitute? You know, there's an amazing book by, um, uh, about PTL that just came out um, by Professor John Wigger, and it shows you this incredible, the underbelly of that story in which so many of them were um, trying to sabotage the other, and, and, they, he and then they all went down. Yeah, and he went down because yes. the people that he was against outed him yeah. and, he, and he went on over several years to be with prostitutes. Yeah, I mean, it was, it ended up being mutual damnation. The Why way do that people they, go back to people like this? Well, and I, I think you can see it in the apology is, um, Christianity, of course, has inside its own theology, like that if you repent, you can be saved. And so people, when they fall, they can immediately just apologize and, and make an about face. And, and two, these are really personal figures to people. If you watch the same person, that face for such a long time, you feel like you know them. And so um, even when Jim Baker was being hauled away to prison, you had people at the courthouse like weeping and pleading for him because he was, he was like family to them. The next man died in 2009. He was 74 years old at the time. He may have been, you can tell me, the original prosperity minister. Too many religious people are taught to believe that they don't deserve anything. And some religious people even pray that prayer. Oh, Lord, I know I'm not worthy. Anything that you don't feel you're worthy of, you can't have. Anything that you feel you do not deserve, that you're not worthy of, you automatically cut yourself off from that good. Reverend Ike. I mean, he was uh, a very popular preacher in the 60s and 70s and then through the 80s. Uh, he was, and it goes to show you how the language of prosperity can be incredibly empowering. So he was talking to people who had been raised in a Jim Crow era in which black Americans were told they could never have enough, let alone, let alone more. And so this thick strand of African-American prosperity preaching ended up being part of this very often emancipatory vocabulary of saying, God didn't, God never asked you to be um, there with someone with their, you know, their, with their heel on your throat, that, that God can promise you more. And it has, and you can see prosperity flourishing among many communities that are often disenfranchised. Let me ask you again, how long you've had the cancer? A little over two years. What kind of treatment are you getting now? 
Um, I've had a whole series of, um, I just finished one course of treatment and now I'm just gonna- What is it? Immunotherapy and chemotherapy. Where is it being done? Now it's at Duke. It's actually like three minutes from my office. So I leave my office and then I go and all of a sudden I'm in a place where everyone has face masks. It's a, it's a real like about face in my day. But for a while you were going to Atlanta? Yeah, I went to Atlanta for almost a year every Wednesday. That was a trial? Yeah, a clinical trial. Immunotherapy is really at the beginning stages of development and so those of us who qualify for trials are pretty desperate to get it. When you had an operation, what was it? Um, man, I've had a few operations. Well, the early, main one. The um, well, this, yeah. I mean, the the first one was to um, to remove a huge tumor from my colon. And is, has there been any shrinkage on the current tumors you have in the liver? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that and with everything, it's. Um, I mean, I think that's where we are with immunotherapy and the idea of a new category of incurable, which is that. Um, with so many things changing in science, the hope is just always to get from one good outcome to the other. And so that's why I always try to explain, like, I'm not terminal. It means I'm not necessarily going to die right away. I mean, we all die. Like, God, that might be news to some people. Um, but the hope is always to just try to, like, find the next vine that's going to swing me over the deep and hope for the best. Christopher Hitchens, who died in 2011, um, had cancer, had esophageal cancer, and all through that period, people kept saying, will you believe in God now? Mm. Because he was an mm. atheist. We interviewed him with a year before a year before he died, and here's what he was saying. Mm. A very large number of people have asked me, um, doesn't it change your attitude to the infinite, the eternal, the supernatural, and so forth? And I, I've said that I really don't see why it should. I've never thought of it as a particularly searching question. I mean, if I, I spend a lot of my life deciding that there isn't any redemption, that there's no salvation, um, that there's no afterlife, that there's no supervising boss, to, if I was to tell you, well, now I've got a malignancy in my esophagus, that changes everything. You would think, I hope, that the main effect had been on my IQ. <laughs> He's always so clever. What about your attitude since you've gotten a cancer at a very young age? What is, have you changed your thinking on, an, on anything uh, yeah. related to religion? Yeah, I mean, I think I have. I, I mean, I've always um, considered myself like a pretty Jesus-y type. Um, but I think so much of it was wrapped up in me assuming that God was a part of this life enhancement project I was on called Life. And the second I got very sick and you kind of come to the end of yourself, I, I will admit it was, it was a really spiritually, is a really spiritually powerfully, powerful time for me, which is funny, I feel so uncomfortable. You can hear me stuttering, like I'm good at talking about other people's faiths. I'm a historian, I'm the calculated, careful observer. But when it comes to my stuff, there, it was almost so like intimate, I didn't want to tell people. Um, I really felt, I felt the presence of God. I felt the love of other people. I mean, just people pouring in the, the intense, all the intense prayers. I mean, the second I got sick, my whole little community got together in a chapel and just prayed like marathon runners for me, like handing off throughout my whole surgery. 
part of it was them reflect reflecting back to me love and also was just the sense that like my hope is that as you're preparing to die like I was having to make preparations that someone or something meets you there and I certainly felt that way Here's one of the few times you see one of these ministers challenged. This is back in the 80s, but it's about a man uh, that lives in Ohio by the name of Ernest Angley. Yeah. He's today 96 years old. Tell us what you think of this. To you, Why is if it you that don't one believe preacher in miracles? can deal with so many people, heal so many people when other preachers can't? How do you have that special knack that you can do that? I don't have a knack, sir. If you're going to talk like that, I won't give you an interview. This is no knack. Aren't you ashamed to throw on the Word of God like that and call this a knack? Aren't, don't you fear God? The Bible says that God is the healer. And Jesus came and healed why the sick. The Bible preacher? said why they could. Preacher? The Bible said in the 16th chapter, I fast, I fast, I pray, and God answers prayer. Man, God answers prayer. Yeah, you could see him like pressing into like the what's the, what's the formula? And like, is it, is it a prayer? Are you anointed? Is it a special place you go to? I mean, I've been encouraged to do all of those things so regularly. Does God answer prayer? Yeah, I mean, I think often and then, some, and then sometimes not. I think the question is that the prosperity gospel raises is, is there a secret formula and can I find it somewhere? And I think the answer is no, but does that bar us then from wonder and hope? I don't think so. Recently, Pat Robertson had a major stroke, although they say he will recover completely from it. Uh, he's 88 years old. Yeah. But years ago, back in 1985, you probably studied this incident. Let's see what you think of this. And at 10.30 in the morning in the old Monticello Hotel, which has now been demolished, I stood up in prayer and led that group of 200 plus people in prayer. We rebuked the hurricane, this monster in the Atlantic Ocean and commanded it in the name of Jesus to turn around and go where it came from. Now, at 10.30, the forward progress of that hurricane stopped like a great hand went out and stopped it. This is a true story. You can look at the records if you don't believe me. Oh, it is a wonderful arrogance. I mean, just the sheer hubris of it, I sort of love it. Like, you can see my face whenever I watch something like that, or I, you know, I've been in a million healing rallies, and like, part of what I admire about them is they have gumption, like nobody else. They really believe that they can turn away a hurricane, and I'm, I'm glad they try. The problem is... Why have there been several hurricanes in Virginia Beach since? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it immediately opens itself up to like, well, then why can't it work all the time, uniformity? And the other is, like, what then, what condemnation then lies on those who fail? And this is always the problem at prosperity preachers' funerals. Unless they die at 96 or something, then there's always a bit of the bulletin that has to explain why a man of faith would pass away as people are scraping and clawing for the meaning of it. And I think that is an awful burden for the sufferer to bear, that they can't simply be a person to be loved, but they have to be a problem to be explained. This happened after the Super Bowl when the Philadelphia Eagles won the game. Here is their quarterback, Nick Foles, and you'll see what he had to say. Just another game, right, Nick? Yeah, just another game. <laughs> Unbelievable. All glory to God. Obviously, Lily really likes this mic. And to be here with my daughter, my wife, my family, my teammates, this city, we're very blessed. 
Reportedly, he's going to be a preacher after he gets out of the football business. Yeah. All glory to God. But what happened? How do you explain sure. that before the games start, both sides pray? Yeah, I mean, I think the Super Bowl is always the annual reminder to Americans that somehow there's an intermediary step between their prayers and God's answers is um, is this is a country that doesn't believe in luck. This is a country that thinks that all things are earned. And so when you see, especially with athletes, is like them sweat and bleed for a goal and then only one side wins, it always highlights the capriciousness of moments like this, is there will always be winners and losers and you don't get to pick which. We don't have much time, but I want you to please tell this story before we close down, the story of the preacher's wife. Oh, sure. Waiting is the language of Ecclesiastes, and then you go into the story. Would you please tell that one? Do you remember it? No, tell me. <laughs> it's the wife and the pastor and... Oh, yeah. No, of course. So I... Um... You know, I learned a lot about the kind of ritualized expectation when I went to these churches and this, uh, the preacher's wife stands up in the middle of the service and says that we need to pray down the rain and that if we pray that the spiritual heavens were open and everything that's been asked for will come down. And so people start stomping and shouting and praising God in hopes that everything they're saying will come true. So a house, a car, and, um, and, and for me at the time, it was a baby. It's like, it, what it does is it carves out in you a hope for every good thing that maybe we are living under an open heaven. And she stood up in the church. She did, she stomped her feet, then she kicked off her heels and, and asked us all to hope for more. Are Mennonites, which you are a member of the church, are they evangelicals? Some of them are, yeah, they're kind of a, um, they're a little like the Jewish faith in which it's both a culture and a religion. So it's kind of got a widespread um, inside Mennonite culture because it can be both like, a, are you Mennonite, a ethnic and a religious designation? But a lot of them are evangelicals. The New York Times twice, big articles by you. How did that happen about your situation? Sure. Well, the first, I mean, it's, it's I mean, I, I tend to write very privately. So at first, when I first got sick, um, I noticed the great irony of me being the scholar and the author of a book called Blessed when nothing in my life appeared to match that theology. And so, of course, I wanted to be the first person to point out that I wasn't super hashtag blessed. So I wrote a piece about what it feels like when you're a problem to be solved and people start trying to pour certainty on your pain. Like, well, you should try this. And maybe if you just prayed in this way or go see so-and-so, he'll fix this. And just the... The, the desire I had to want for more when I, I wasn't sure it was possible. Anyway, so I sent that article in. I found a wonderful a editor, Aaron Radica, who I adore, and he um, gave it uh, a front page of the Sunday Review. And then I got thousands of letters about it saying, no, 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 I'd actually really like you to be certain and here's the solution. <laughs> so he, the only point had been, please don't pour certainty on my pain. And then of course, a zillion people did, so I wrote And then this, you wrote again. Yeah, so I wrote this other piece about like, okay guys, I love you so much. Here are kinds of categories of responses to those in pain. There are um, minimizers, at least you don't. Um, problem solvers, maybe you should try. Or teachers, have you seen this documentary? And I've all are born of great love, but I would like to say, like I am not on trial. 
two books that you need to know about by Kate Bowler. One of them is Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. That's back in 2013. And her newest book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Kate Bowler has been our guest and we thank you. So much for having me. What a treat. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A podcast. We'll spend the next several weeks dipping into our archives, sharing some of our best episodes. And Q&A will be back in January with new episodes. So be sure to follow this feed so you never miss an episode.